Like, if that's not the line, where is the line? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the Roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only Mike Madrid. Mike, how's the book going? Oh, it was such a great introduction until you had to bring it down. It's great to be with you guys. It's been a little while since we had this, this band playing, so I'm looking forward to the show. Good to see you. Also returning to the Roundup is the inimitable... Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's always good to see you. And I especially love when you and Mike are on together. Yeah, and I'm doing great because I'm not writing a book right now. So everything is groovy <laughs> over here. That's a brutal, be a brutal show. <laughs> It'll be worth it when it's over, Mike. Up first this week, we are going to discuss Justice Samuel Alito's private jet imbroglio. ProPublica's reporting, his rebuttal in the Wall Street Journal, and Senate Democrats push for court reform. Then we're going to look at China's plans to build a joint military training facility in Cuba. And then we will discuss Fed Chairman Powell's appearance before the House Financial Services Committee, the Fed's decision not to raise interest rates last week, and what it says about the state of the economy and what could be in store. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, We'll discuss Hunter Biden's plea deal and what it could mean for our politics. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of today's show notes. All right. There's been a lot of scrutiny of Supreme Court ethics coming from Democrats recently, from the accusations about Clarence Thomas to the recent reporting from ProPublica about Samuel Alito. And we're going to talk about this reporting from ProPublica, but I want to make sure that we're conscious of the politics here and how the reporting here helps Democrats. On Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Last Friday, two reporters from ProPublica emailed Alito with a series of questions asking for a reply by Tuesday at noon. Alito chose to respond by writing a piece in the journal rebutting the reporting before it was published, uh, a prebuttal, if you will. The ProPublica report alleges that in 2008, Justice Alito attended a fishing trip at a lodge in Alaska. Uh, a businessman and a major conservative donor, Robin Arkley II, owned the fishing lodge and paid for Alito's stay. The report also alleges that businessman Paul Singer attended the fishing trip and flew Alito to Alaska on a private jet. Uh, if the justice had chartered the plane himself, it would have exceeded $100,000 one way. They also report that Leonard Leo, the longtime leader of the Federalist Society, helped to organize the trip, and he invited Singer and asked Singer if he and Alito could fly on Singer's jet. So Arkley has not had any business before the court, but Singer and his hedge fund, uh, Elliott Management, have on several occasions. In 2001, the Argentinian government defaulted. A subsidiary of Elliott Management, NML, purchased their debt at a steep discount. Uh, eventually, most creditors settled with the government for a fraction of what the debt was worth, but NML held out. And Singer's firm was attempting to force Argentina to pay in full. His personal involvement in the case was widely reported. Uh, in 2007, they asked the Supreme Court to intervene, and the court declined. 
after the Alaska vacation, parties in the case asked the Supreme Court to take up an aspect of the dispute eight times in six years. Um, in 2014, the court he- agreed to hear a case on the matter. It centered on how much protection Argentina could claim as a sovereign nation against the hedge fund's legal maneuvers in U.S. courts. So justices have a lot of leeway in deciding whether or not they should recuse themselves from a hearing from a case. Their decision also can't be appealed. The current standard is that they should recuse themselves when failure to recuse creates a, uh, quote, appearance of impropriety. And Chief Justice Roberts described it as such. Quote, there is an appearance of impropriety when an unbiased and reasonable person who is aware of all the relevant facts would doubt that the justice could fairly discharge his or her duties, end quote. And in his op-ed, Alito wrote that no such person would think that my relationship with Mr. Singer meets that standard. Now, Alito wrote that he and Singer never discussed his business or the cases before the court and that Singer allowed Alito to occupy what would have otherwise been an unoccupied seat on a private flight to Alaska. He also wrote that Singer's name, this is important, Singer's name did not appear on the filing in the case they took up, so he was unaware of Singer's affiliation. I feel like this is really important and hasn't made it into much, if any, of most of the sensational reporting that I've seen about this so far. So just uh, uh, to, to finish this up, I first learned about this story as it was breaking from one of our um, colleagues and friends, Mike Zachchakowski, who's been on the show before. He asked me what I thought of it, so I did a quick Google. And right back to back, we have two um, headlines that just came up in Google News. The first is Fox News saying, Samuel Alito slams ProPublica as misleading ahead of report alleging conflict of interest from SCOTUS bench. And then the one right after that is MSNBC. And it says, Senator Markey, far right SCOTUS is clear and present danger to our country. And so I lay all of this at your feet. Um, Lucy, I'd love for you to lead off here. Um, but we're all familiar with all of the players that I just mentioned. Uh, and I wonder, what do you make of the questions about recusal? Um, you know, obviously, Justice Alito gets to make that decision under the current system. Um, I don't think it's been made clear in the reporting here that... Uh, that it's very difficult to claim that anybody is out of compliance because of the nature of Supreme Court ethics rules. So how are you thinking about it? Just, I I lay it all at your feet. Well, I think that there are a couple of ways to think about this broadly. And then there are a few ways also to think about the particulars of the Alito fabulous fishing trip. And my favorite part of Alito's rebuttal, or as you say, pre-buttal, is that he wanted us to know that the, the lodge was not as nice as it looks now. It's it's since been remodeled. So keep that in mind. But I, I think that when we think about this conceptually, there's the question of what have the standards been and what should they be? And if we look at this from the on the basis of what have the standards been, what are the requirements of disclosure? I think it's hard to make an argument that the Alito fishing trip mounts to the level of the kind of stuff that we've seen with someone like Clarence Thomas for a few reasons. One of them is Paul Singer is not like the CEO of Motorola or the CEO of Coca-Cola, where uh, Alito was hanging out with this guy and and seeing all of these um, seeing all of these cases come before the court, where it was Motorola v. Coca-Cola v. Whatever. Elliot, the financial institution that Paul Singer helms, has their has their tentacles in gobs and gobs of different business dealings, which is why I think, as Alito says, he really would have no idea 
in many of these cases that Elliott management was involved in these cases coming before the court, many of which were coming before the court in, in terms of asking the court to take them up and the court did not, right? And so I, I don't think that there's an appearance of, of impropriety in that way. It raises a spotlight on the fact that the social fabric and the social network on the right around the Federalist Society, around uh, members of the judiciary who are conservative and come up in that, is a social network that it appears, and Lene has talked about this a lot, But and, and I've come from the right, so I can only really speak to what it is like in the right, having been connected to entities like FedSoc. There is no parallel in on the left. The left doesn't have a parallel um, kind of social fabric around judges. So I'm not, you know, just like I'm, Alito is not like my favorite guy, <laughs> but I also don't think that anything about this particular instance seems like I mean, g- going on a fishing trip with a guy like Paul Singer in the manner in which he did years ago. Yeah, they've, they've you know, broken bread together at like, the Manhattan Institute, stuff like that. But it does all seem pretty out in the open. He wasn't hiding this fishing trip. In fact, he joked about it in a speech at some point. This seems very, very different than the kind of things that we saw, for example, with Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas and buying his mom's house and so paying his his uh, basically adopted son's school tuition and stuff where you can look at that and say, that is clearly something, there's something very, very weird going on. So that's what I think in general. I do think we could have a discussion about what we want, how how stringent we want disclosure requirements to be or what they should be going forward. But do I think that ProPublica has nailed Alito in this case? I I don't. I don't. I think there's one, I, I think that's really insightful. There's one thing I want to underscore, which you said earlier, which is that the left doesn't have the kind of social fabric built around judges that the, that the right does in the Federalist Society. And I remember a conversation uh, from a couple of years ago where I was talking with Linnea about this, just curious about why the left doesn't really have a, an answer to the Federalist Society. And it comes down to uh, essentially that there's no cohesion on the left around a single judicial philosophy in the way that the Federalist Society has um, has has organized itself around originalism, and um, and and there just there is no there is no um, correlate on the left when it comes to um, applying the law and interpreting the Constitution. I talked with Akhil Amar about this, a liberal uh, professor of uh, law at Yale, who's sort of a sort of titan of liberal jurisprudence. He's also a member of the Federal Society. He's also an originalist. And so I think that's really important for people to understand why the left really hasn't been able to organize to get judges appointed as effectively at the, as the Federalist Society. Mike, <laughs> I, you and I have talked about um, something that concerns me a lot and frequently, which is sort of the erosion of confidence in the court, um, whether it's deserved or undeserved. And the optics here, regardless of whether there was an ethics violation, regardless of who is uh, ultimately responsible for determining whether there was an ethics violation. At this point, it is up to each justice to recuse themselves if they feel that they have, uh, you know, that they meet the standard that um, that the chief justice laid out. Um, I still, I think it's, it's, it's important to hold both things separately. One is that the court would absolutely benefit from ethics reform, especially at this moment. And also, 
it really concerns me when we have uh, rhetoric like the court is a clear and present danger to the United States coming from some of the uh, you know louder voices on the left. And I wonder how you balance those two, um, you know, personally and also for, through a political lens. Well, let me say first, I think that we are in a, uh, these are extraordinary times, right? So many, so many norms that have held up uh, the foundation and the cornerstones of our democratic institutions are being eroded and they're being um, chipped away at. Some of them are being outright attacked. And there's this easy temptation to conflate all of these as you know being an attack on democracy and that that is that is foundationally not true but there's an equally dangerous temptation to compare one action with another and say well it wasn't as bad as and i think that's really dangerous and the reason why is because when we are at a time when we are pushing the envelope or or jumping over the envelope line of where we're heading with norms to keep saying, well, it wasn't as bad as this instance continually moves us further and further away from the trust in those institutions. What Alito did was um, absolutely violated the appearance of conflict of interest. Uh, no question in my mind. It, absolutely. You know, we can, we can uh, Justice Roberts agrees, right? He said it in his own words. Like, it's, this is the, the appearance. And, and that, by the way, the appearance is what makes the courts different than the other branches of government. Okay? It, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it rests on the idea that a handful of people hold their role sacrosanct and above reproach because they are not ultimately accountable to an electorate. They're not accountable to democratic you know, processes the way the other two branches are. We leave it up to them, essentially. And for that reason, it's extremely important that the, that word is very, it's very methodically chosen. It's the appearance is what is important. Not, the, the standard is appearance. It's not even the violation. It's, it's don't even put yourself in a position of appearing to erode that trust because we hold this special place in, in, in this, this elegant solution that the founders came up with, the, the balance between three parties, there's certainly reforms that have to take place now. And that's unfortunate because that means a lot of what we have relied on of the faith and confidence in this institution for 200 years is essentially broken. That's a separate problem. But the standard that Robert finds his own court in right now is a violation of the the appearance the, the the approval of the court the confidence in the court has never been lower in the history of modern polling and i would argue for good reason i think it will go lower because of instances just like this and so the one remaining institution that was supposed to be above politics that's supposed to be above this democratic process that gets so messy is being sucked down by the actions of its own members. Look, this is just a fishing trip, I guess is one way to say it. But is it that important to go fishing with a, a multi-gazillionaire hedge fund who's, who's clearly going to have interests before your court? Or, or even if he doesn't, why do you want to be a public official who's held to a higher standard? Okay, And it's not like a school board member. This is a member of the United States Supreme Court. 
okay? When you're held to a higher standard, it's not like you don't have the money to pay to get to the trip. You got to take a $100,000 route instead of dropping the 5K to fly first class on Alaska Airlines. I mean, come on. Isn't that worth it to you? Isn't that worth it to your role, to your place in history? That's what bothers me is we, 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 we've so succumbed to this idea that, that, that it doesn't, that these things don't, that these things don't matter, that they're not important, that, that living these grandiose lifestyles differently isn't one, one isn't as bad as what it could have been. You see what my really rich friends did, then, which is essentially a big part of Alito's argument, right? Or two, that, that, that even the, the appearance of impropriety is the problem. And that, that's what really troubles me is because the, 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 the Supreme Court's in deep, deep trouble. And I will say this. We can get past a Congress that's held in low esteem. In fact, I would argue that Congress should be held in low esteem with, with our American political tradition. This is who we are as Americans. I'm totally okay with that. The presidency has been debased, right, under under Donald Trump, and I would argue even presidents past, right? There's the Nixon stuff, there's the Clinton stuff. I mean, there's just been some ugly stuff, and and that's that's fine, but that's resolvable because they're ultimately accountable to the people. The court, the court's got to hold itself to a higher standard, and that's what's so troubling about this whole whole episode. I didn't have defending Samuel Alito on my agenda today, but I'm really not ready to condemn. Alito in in quite such strong words. I'm not sure I think that it smacks of the kind of impropriety to the to the degree that you think it does, Mike. I mean, for example, if if he had flown commercial instead of private, would would ProPublica not be writing this article? I don't think so. And I think it's a very tough standard to to figure out, right? We're sort of bumbling around in the dark because it is the case that people who are Supreme Court justices all schmooze all kinds of people all the time, whether or not the reason that those people want to schmooze them or not, whether what their motivations are, we can't know. But it's not the case that only Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas are out. And Clarence Thomas, again, I think that that, that whole interaction with Harlan Crow is not remotely comparable to the fishing trip. But they all live in Washington. They all are invited to schmoozy parties. I, I'm also not prepared. So, I mean, how should, do we, do, are we going to require that Supreme Court justices, you know, like live in, live in bubbles? And also, is it, do we want them to live in bubbles or is it that we just want more disclosure, like wanting more disclosure and having more stringent requirements for disclosure? Like, yes, you must you should have disclosed this fishing trip because X, Y, Z, and we need to know is different than saying you shouldn't go on the fishing trip, which it sounds like many people are saying. So I think it's like a pretty sticky wicket to start to unravel these things. And yes, confidence in the court is lower than ever. And I don't like everything that this court has done. But I also think some of the low confidence in the court comes from the way that the chattering class talks about the court now in, in, in ways that are actually also very damaging. And I am not prepared to believe that the, the, you know, you, you're referencing the founder's vision for the court. I'm just not prepared to believe that earlier Supreme Court justices were <laughs> all these perfectly, um, perfectly compliant people who never, ever 
it like broke bread with people who uh, had matters before them. I think actually, if we really, if we were able to uh, transport ProPublica back to whenever uh, the 19th century, we might find that there was more <laughs> dealing. And yeah, we, we, had, we had a Supreme Court, we had a Supreme Court justice resign in the 1970s because of, because of, of, of impropriety. So th- th- I'm not suggesting that human beings are perfect. I'm arguing the exact opposite. And again, attacking Alita wasn't on my bingo card here either. <laughs> but, what, but what I will say is, what I will say is this: this is not hard. This is not difficult. You're not living in a bubble when you refuse to accept a hundred thousand dollar trip to go on a fishing tour with Alaska with a guy who obviously only wants to go with you because you're on the U.S. Supreme Court. Like that. That if there's any line or any standard, that's clearly but wanting it. to be around. I mean, that's, that's but not, wanting to be around a Supreme Court justice does not mean that you want to be around that Supreme Court justice because you want to influence matters this, before the, the court. Look, this is, we should fine, say we should fine. say that. that's not his motivation. This is Alito's motivation. That's the point. They are the ones who set the standard. And to, to, to again, I, I think this is really dangerous to conflate. Well, everybody in Washington does it, and look at this—you know, Harlan Crow is a different. No, it's not. It's a hundred thousand dollar private jet flying to a fishing vacation in Alaska because you're a Supreme Court member. Oh, and by the way, the, the head of the Federalist Society pulled it together. I mean, come, come on! Like, if that's not the line, where is the line? So we should say, like, the singer thing probably stands separate from the Arkley thing because ProPublica pretty much gives Arkley a pass in this reporting. So TBD, whether he, you know there, it would be a story if he didn't get a gift from someone who had business before the court. Yeah, this is hard. Justices are going to have social lives, right? So where, where the question is, where do they, where should they draw the line in their, in their social lives? I think that's ultimately the question, right? And if the standard is appearance, which I, I completely understand why it is and should be, who's the judge of appearances? Well, I, I think it's pretty, I mean, like I said, there's, there's I think, so many, so many clear answers to, to, to this one. First of all, the court deals with these issues all the time, right? It's kind of like the famous issue of pornography where... Where Supreme you know Court Fortas, I think, basically said, "You know it when you see it." All right, I can't explain pornography, you know exactly, but you know it when you see it. Well, yeah, you know it when you see it. Like that's not normal behavior. This is not normal social behavior. This isn't just hanging out and everybody in Washington does it. That's not true. That's not true, right? One, but two, when you are when you are when you have the public trust, which is something that is desperately slipping away from us at this moment in American history. It is incumbent upon you. That's the sacred role of the Supreme Court's justice. It's what differentiates that branch of government from the other two. You are the standard. And that's why the word appearance is so important. Now, both sides are going to attack justices they don't like by saying that's a violation of appearance. But there are so many instances which are clearly outside of the boundaries of that appearance of, of compromising, potentially, potentially compromising yourself, of giving the appearance of compromise. So there, there's now this, it's, what, what, is, what should be very clear, however you come down on, on, on the Alito mess, is that the court needs some kind of ethical reform. They need, they need, they need, uh, they need, they need to reform. Somehow. Now, uh, in a perfect world, the court would do this themselves, but it doesn't look like that's in the cards right now, which is to me the really 
um, devastating thing about this entire era um, that we're in because you know we know that Chief Justice John Roberts has one of his uh, one of his priorities is the credibility of the court and um, uh, and that just um, it's in a bad way and so now uh, this past Wednesday uh, Dick Durbin who's the Senate Judiciary Chair announced that his panel uh, is going to vote on ethics legislation for the court after the July 4th holiday and he claimed that the court is in an ethical crisis of its own making. I totally agree. Um, and that Congress will act if the chief justice does not. So Democrats say the legislation would apply the same ethical standards to SCOTUS as the lower courts. Um, Senator Whitehouse has a bill to increase disclosure requirements and allow complaints to be filed against justices. Senators uh, Angus King and Lisa Murkowski also have a bill that would require the court to create its own code of ethics. Um, it's also worth noting that Mitch McConnell has said he would fight against the legislation. So, um, whew, I, let's just take a couple minutes and then, and then move on to the next, a bit like sort of quick lightning round. Um, the politics of court reform raise an, a really troubling question about the legality of the, of one branch to impose, uh, rules against another independent uh, sovereign branch, essentially, semi-sovereign branch. So, uh, hot takes, Lucy. Yeah, it it does raise questions. It's it is challenging, and of course, we can all be in favor of increased transparency, more stringent requirements on members of the court. Um, at, you know, as sort of irrespective of what how we think it's gone in the past, or what Alito should have done, or Thomas, or Roberts himself, whatever. It becomes very tough, though, because as you try to craft these things, like how do you get at what you're trying to get at, right? Like Supreme Court justices can write books and make money off of books. If a publisher who has, let's say there's a, a publisher of a, of a major uh, a major publishing house, a publishing executive who is married to a um, person who's uh, an, an oil and gas heir, and that publishing executive goes and offers a seven-figure book deal to uh, you know Sotomayor, uh, is like, is that allowed? Right. Because what if that, what if that person's spouse or cousin has matters coming before the court? Like, how do we craft these rules? Right. So yes, it is good to aspire to these things, but it becomes very, very tough. And it is, I don't think it is as easy as you know, it when you see it. And I, I think that's what makes it so challenging, not to mention just the, the implications of a of a body, a legislative body that is partisan, that that does politicize the court themselves all the time in how they talk about the court being the body by which we do that. And then you have, you know, like court ethics and transparency becomes an issue in every election and becomes this hot potato. It it just is you can you can see that the road to hell is paved in good intentions. That's my hot take. Mike, politics of court reform and, and where we go from here, who should take the ball? The, the danger here, I think, the, the potential danger is really the uh, imbalance of powers, right, and, and setting up a fight between two branches of government. I mean, there's, there's a very real scenario where Congress could pass something uh, that is supposed to, you know, um, guide or, di- or direct the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court could basically throw it out and say it's just unconstitutional, right? <laughs> now, you can't tell us what to do, and that, that's a very real scenario, and that again gets back to the, the point of, of self-policing, 
And and remember, this whole episode, this whole really, I mean, look, it's been part of our, our DNA since our founding, but it's been on particularly public display since 2016, where we are asking these fundamental questions about democratic norms, social norms, which are collapsing around us. And so once we lower our standard for that, there, there, there's no hope. You're basically getting rid of your democracy. It's just a kind of a slow bleed. The question is how slow. So those standards are they're very important. Now, now Congress should not be uh, legislating this, but but we're in a position where the court is clearly incapable of managing its own house, its own business, and there's really no power that the 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 the, the chief justice, who's clearly troubled by this behavior. Of, of two of his members at least, maybe more coming out, but he's not happy with what they've done because it's hurting the institution. He's powerless, right? He, the only tool we've had is shame. And we are a shameless society now. And that's so that explains so much of why these norms are coming down, right? And so in an environment like that, it becomes easy to rationalize this bad behavior. These, these are norms that would never have been accepted. I mentioned earlier we had a Supreme Court justice in the 1970s who resigned because he was doing something unethical, right? Can you imagine? And I'm sure it was a fraction of what, you know, Alito taking a $100,000 trip, $100,000 gift, right? Can you imagine Alito saying, oh, you know what, for the betterment of the country and to protect and preserve the institution, I'm going to resign? Or Clarence Thomas? There's just absolutely no way. And when, when you have an environment like that, when that's the culture, when that's accepted and it's okay, and the sacredness of, of our institutions are not primary, they're not paramount, you are on a decline. You, you, are, you are not only on a decline, you are, it, 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 you are in an irreversible slide. And the question only becomes, how long do you last? And that's, that's the real challenge. We can't legislate our way out of a people who are, are basically up okay with, with corruption. You, you can't. If, that, if that's your culture, there are plenty of countries around the world that are in very similar circumstances where that corruption just becomes endemic. And I'm not, I'm not Pollyannish enough to believe that that hasn't been here in this country, but when you travel to other countries where it is endemic, it's just kind of like, a, oh yeah, that's the way things work. In the United States, when we saw it, it was public, we would actually, there would be some shame about it because you were, you were undermining this institution of something that we had built 20 generations ago that we wanted to protect and preserve. We are sliding away from that now. Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that China and Cuba are negotiating to establish a new joint military training facility in Cuba. And this comes just a few weeks after the White House declassified intelligence confirming that Chinese intelligence collection facilities have been in Cuba since at least 2019. The plans for the military training facility are not as far along. Um, The Biden administration has contacted Cuban officials in an attempt to stop the deal before it gets finalized. They believe Cuba has concerns about ceding sovereignty to China, so that could help. Uh, But this latest reporting came in the midst of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's high-profile visit to China. He met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Uh, Blinken failed to secure China's agreement to resume military-to-military communications. Uh, The State Department also said that Blinken raised concerns about the Chinese intelligence activities in Cuba. Um, 
this seems like a big deal that there could be Chinese training facilities 100 miles off the coast of Florida at a time when we are um, reckoning with uh, increased tension with China and a potential decoupling of our economies, um, which Janet Yellen has warned would be catastrophic. Um, how are you thinking about this potentiality? Mike, you want to lead off? Yeah. I mean, look, it's troubling, but I understand the real politique of this too. I mean, you have to remember within the last 72 hours, uh, Papua New Guinea basically signed an accord saying United States can have unfettered access to do whatever they want militarily as well. Right. Like we are, we are close. We are, we are, we are starting to strangle the shipping lanes in the South China Sea for good reason. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but is China going to, you know, just, be okay with it? No. I mean, this is, this is, we, we are, look, the, the geopolitics of, of the, of the world are obviously in flux. They're changing. They always are. I, 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 is there anything that we can essentially do about it? I mean, we can create more and more pressure, but we're already doing that, right? This is heading towards something. I, I, I earnestly believe though, that, that we're going to, uh, we we both both nations have far far more upside in a good working relationship than the downside of trying to be a global hegemon, and that's becoming clearer and clearer when you look at China's population and the the internal dynamics, and when you look at China's currency challenges and its economic growth projections, it's not a great picture, right? You got Russia collapsing essentially on its northern border. And then you've got the shipping lanes in the South China Sea, which is the entirety, the entirety of what makes the economy work in China. And if if, if we can shut that off in a second, you know, what does what does even a, a slightly elevated conflict look like for China? So I'm not, I'm I'm certainly not making an argument for China. I'm the last guy in the world that's going to do that. But I understand the politics. I understand, you know, in assessing the situation, what what they would and should be doing. And I think it's a bold move. I think it's a troubling move. And it's also just a kind of a sign, which is, hey, if you're going to start, you know, establishing your dominance in the South China Sea, we've got some options here too. And 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 the politics are going to get really nasty internally here because anti-China sentiment is going to be on the rise. Presidents of both parties are going to be forced to to start, uh, you know, using a, a heavier stick in foreign policy. And a lot of this is just, I think, I don't want to say it's a, a, a avoidable. It, it's a complicated, um, you know, situation with a rising power and arguably a declining power at the same time. But. Um, Ultimately, I think the economics of this thing starts to work out. I, th- I think I think Russia's troubles really changed the the the, the framework for which w- which China is looking at the world, and frankly, the West is looking at the world too, along with India and others. Yeah, I think the significance of the um, shipping lanes thing is it was really really important uh, because you only have to take a trip down memory lane to COVID when you know all of our supply chains became really really stressed and you couldn't find toilet paper. Guess guess what? caused all of that stuff shipping shipping from china like all of all of the stuff that we get from china um couldn't get through so the fact that we're considering going there is um it's really alarming um lucy uh biden calls xi jinping a dictator (laughs) and then a chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman called president biden irresponsible uh after that for that comment he was speaking at a crowd, Biden was speaking at a crowd at a California fundraiser on Tuesday when he made the comment. Um, Trump had tried to go after Biden on China in 2020 with these 
latest developments, how important do you think it's going to be for Biden to not just be tough on China, but to appear tough on China? Um, as as Mike said, you know, rising anti-Chinese sentiment um, is going to be a big political force as we go into 2024. Yeah, I think that this is another interesting episode of the contrast between Joe Biden and his closest advisors, and especially in this case, the contrast between uh, Tony Blinken and Joe Biden. And I think it is another case in which mm. Biden's political imp- impulses and um, what an off script Joe Biden looks like are that is, are much better than many of his closest closest advisors. Joe Biden has a lot of foreign policy experience. This is kind of this is his wheelhouse. And so to flash back to this week, Tony Blinken goes to have a meeting with Chinese leaders, and he basically, I, I think, didn't come off great. Right, like like made some asks. They didn't they didn't meet him. Uh, they didn't give him the answers he wanted. Then he made went to great pains to say that the U.S. believes in the one China policy, which to remind people is like basically that China gets to continue to act dictatorial around things like independent Taiwan and be aggressive toward Hong Kong, right? That this is like since Kissinger, right? We've we've sort of tried to thread the needle of like we're not we're not saying that you can go act inappropriately, but we're also not saying that you can't and we'll, we'll kind of like figure it out as it unfolds. And, and then, you know, so Blinken goes and does that song and dance, which was not a great look for the U S in the backdrop of things like a building Chinese military training base off our coast. And then the next day you see Joe Biden appear at a fundraiser and really say it like it is, right? Like China is a dictatorship. And frankly, we also, I think it's so funny because I caught a clip the next day, I think it was on CNN, of all these pundits like hand-wringing over the fact that Joe Biden had gotten too aggressive against China. And as though like, wow, you really need to walk that back, which I don't understand at all because the criticism of the Biden administration and of Democrats is that they are not aggressive enough and not strong enough on China. And so Joe Biden is actually meeting that criticism by showing that he is prepared to be strong on China. And I think as context, as Mike alludes to, China is a nation in decline, right? China's per capita debt to GDP ratio is insane, right? We talk about how much China's GDP is. China's GDP per capita is $12,500 or something per person. The US's per capita GDP is over $70,000 per person. Their debt to GDP ratio, we are always talking about, oh my God, we're, we are, have debt to China, very concerning. China also, their debt is out of control. Their fertility rate is like 1.3 <laughs> like ch- children per women. They are an economy that is built on the backs of young workers who are disappearing. So we need to treat China like it is, a country in decline that we do not need to be pursuing appeasement for. Uh, this is, this is just, I think Biden is meeting the moment exactly as he should. And, and I think that's the Joe Biden that we should hope to continue to see ahead of 2024. And really, I think that Biden's advisors should be taking cues from Joe Biden, not the way other way around. I'm really glad you brought up debt because it's a really good segue to the third segment I wanted to get to, um, which, uh, well, debt by way of inflation. So the headline here is that uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell 
on Wednesday testified before the House Financial Services Committee as part of his semi-annual report to both chambers of Congress. He's also set to appear before the Senate Banking Committee uh, today, Thursday, we record Thursday morning. Um, Powell's testimony came just a week after the Fed uh, skipped its most recent uh, rate hike in its aggressive rate hiking campaign, um, most aggressive rate hiking campaign in decades. Powell told lawmakers that it was a pretty good guess, those were his words, that the central bank would increase its key lending rate by a quarter point twice more this year. Democrats on the Hill were concerned about how the rate hikes could impact the economy, particularly leading to increases in unemployment. He, Powell, touted the current historically low unemployment and high unemployment rates and the high participation rate. But there's a lot more to the financial picture to consider here. And so with that as the backdrop, as the catalyst for this conversation, I just wanted to put a few more things out there on the table for you guys to think about. Um, and then think about what the politics of this are going to be and how, you know, how, how bad this potentially could get. Prior to the debt ceiling deal, the markets were estimating the highest probability of U.S. default on record ever. Um, so that's, that is people betting in the markets on whether or not we're going to default. It was, it skyrocketed. You look at the chart, it's insane. While Powell is insisting that the U.S. banking system is sound, that was one of his claims that he made. Uh, Stanford's Institute for Economic Policy Research is saying that many U.S. banks face exactly the same risk that brought down Silicon Valley Bank. And one of the world's most respected economists, uh, Nouriel Roubini, has said that most U.S. banks are technically near insolvency and hundreds are already fully insolvent. Okay? Uh, I have also um, sort of previously explained how the Federal Reserve is operating in the red right now and so that they're annual remittances of close to $100 billion a year uh, are now zero to the U.S. Treasury because of these rate hikes. Um, Three of the four largest bank failures in history happened this year. The first one was Washington Mutual, which was the domino that tipped in in, uh, uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Um, And the total amount uh, uh, of assets for these failed banks now exceeds those of the financial crisis. Morgan Stanley's strategist uh, said commercial real estate prices could crash 40% from their peak, causing a worse disaster than the 2008 financial crisis. Um, And right now I'm looking at um, Ycharts has a US recession probability um, rating and they project all the way out. This is really fascinating. At the peak in COVID, so 2020, 2021, the highest probability ever got was around 37%. Okay, and it's gone down ever since then. We're in the like single digits right now, June of 2023. May of 2024, probability is up at 70% US recession. And then finally, back to debt, since you brought it up, um, S&P Global is, re- is reporting that global debt has hit a record $300 trillion or 349% leverage on global gross domestic product which means that the government debt-to-GDP leverage grew by 76% total to a total of 102%. So now global debt-to-GDP is upside down, which means that the entire world is over-leveraged. That's not a a pretty picture. And I wonder just how long um, we can sustain this uh, uh, mess. It seems to me central banks all over the world are going to have to continue printing money and continue um, expanding, uh, or if you will, debasing the money supply. Um, and, uh, and, uh, S and P global calls this, um, 
the Great Reset. There is no easy way to keep, I'm reading from the reporting, there is no easy way to keep global leverage down. Trade-offs include more cautious lending, reduced overspending, restructuring low-performing enterprises, and writing down less productive debt. This will require a great reset of policymaker mindset and community acceptance. (laughs) Mike, what do you make of all of that? Well, I, I think uh, the great reset, I think, is a really important way to put it. And I think that that's right. There's there's essentially two things that are going on, or, or there's more, but two key things. One is you mentioned the banking sector, which, you know, that's the engine of the whole, <laughs> whole global system. When you start to see the banking system melt down, as we did in 2008, that has to be, that's triage. That's the first patient you let into the emergency room and you fix that patient because nothing else matters. If that If that goes down, the whole damn thing goes down. Then there's the question of inflation and recession. And and first of all, we've been in this peculiar debate as a country about what a recession actually is anymore. You remember last year at this time, you know, I was tweeting out saying, yeah, we're we're in recession. We, you know, a recession technically is defined as two quarters of negative growth and like everybody like starts going nuts. It's not a recession. Don't say the R word. Don't say the R word, <laughs> you know, it's like that it's okay. Like this is you know, the republic will survive at least for the moment. I've always been of the opinion that inflation is is a far more nefarious actor than a recession. There's nothing wrong with the ebbs and flows of an economic cycle. They're not fun, but they happen. That's the way it works. You can't have positive growth forever. Okay. Inflation erodes trust and confidence in the economic underpinnings of a country that's issuing the currency. That's far, far more damaging than two quarters of negative growth. And I was saying, you'll remember, I think we need to hike rates farther and faster than we ever have and throw the economy into a recession. And it was like, oh, we can't do that. No, yeah, you can do that. And frankly, you should do that because that's how you rein in inflation immediately. Okay. That's anyway. So, so, so there's that, there's that point. The, 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 the question, I think what we're really dealing with is, is the confidence in our currency. And I don't know that we necessarily have to inflate our way out of it or print our way out of it. We don't. There's going to have to be some measures that we don't necessarily like and that the, you articulated it perfectly or the reports did saying it's going to have to be a change of policymakers and consumers. Good luck with any one of those, right? <laughs> saying you're going to have to rein <laughs> it in and tighten it in, but you have to. Like at some point, it's just math. With, with the one possible exception is being, can you can economic growth overcome that, and can you grow your way out of this problem? And you know, people go, well, you can't do that. But the truth is, we did in the early 1990s during the Clinton administration. We did grow out of it. We grew out of a huge, massive debt bubble. And I, but the, now. The one caveat there is this is when the internet was dramatically positively transforming the economy. You've got to have some technological driver, and maybe that's artificial intelligence. Maybe that's something I don't know, but it's not emergent. It's not visible on the horizon right now. So, look, I'm not. There are some. There are some fundamental challenges with the global economy. There's no question about that. But I don't think it's on the brink of collapse. I mean, knock on wood. Um, I, I think as long as we shore up the banking sector, the fight between inflation and recession is just going to have to play itself out. Is it going to be easy, comfortable? No, it's not. We've got some big problems. There's some massively overinflated currency out there. You know, the UK just raised their interest rates, I think, a full point today. 
because their inflation is, is just spiraling out of control. Um, but, but without banks, w- without a solid banking institution, none of these tools make any sense or work. So on the banking front, um, Lucy, so, so the issue that caused SVB to fail and that uh, is systemic among so many of the other banks um, was interest rate exposure. And so when you hike interest rates, all of these banks suddenly are in a real bad way. And that's what's causing, um, you know, that's what has caused the, the initial wave of, of, of banks to fail. Um, so the consequence of that is that deposits uh, accrue to the biggest banks. You have this consolidation among the biggest four banks, uh, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Citigroup. Um, and so we're ending up in a situation where um, more and more uh, assets, deposits are accumulating at these, at these gigantic banks that are, that are, as we know, too big to fail. Um, and uh, yeah, like, I, I just, I don't see this going, like, that seems like a bad thing to me when we said after the 2008 financial crisis that that was the not, that was, we didn't want to do that again. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet here we are. That's the consequence of these um, rate hikes. Well, I think what do you we think? have to be a little careful about cause and effect. And the, yes, interest rates hikes do create a lot of pressure. And in some cases, pressure that they cannot manage through on smaller banks. But the reason that that pressure is created in the first place, for example, in the case of SVB, is because they did not have sufficient capital reserves to <laughs> cover their obligations. And one of the things that we right. saw in recent months is that even though we thought that we had put in all these safeguards, there were still banks that were acting kind of cowboyish, right? Like SVB was overextending themselves in order to try to be competitive and to uh, generate new business, both to a sector of that was also experiencing its own stress, the, the, the technology sector, the, the broader uh, sector of venture capital, but they wanted to get more and more clients. And so for years and years, they were extending uh, like returns on interest rates that were not sustainable. So I think that part of this, part of this discussion is how profitable are banks? Do we want to have banks be or not, right? Because banks exist to make money in this broader context, like what's the balance between requiring higher capital reserves versus profits? And do also people have to be more comfortable with the fact that, yeah, not every not every bank account that you enroll in is going to be giving you some sort of like plum interest rate return. Um, so I think it's a little bit tough. I, I agree that consolidation of banking, where you have such a, so few banks, people are, there's fear. I don't want to say panic because that has different contexts, but fear that drives people to then contract with, do business with the largest banks has other implications around competitiveness and others. But I still don't think that we should let these smaller banks off the hook for some of the decisions that they've made to get themselves into this situation. One of the things that I think is really interesting in the broader conversation around inflation is how much it's, how hard it is even to tie the Federal Reserve's actions to outcomes. So like, one piece of news this week is that when you look at inflation rates now this summer compared to last summer, where we had an inflation rate of like 9%, now it's 4%. And you think, oh, good. Does that mean that 
the Federal Reserve's policy is working? It's like, don't know, not sure, right? We were talking about the pandemic earlier. When you think about egg prices, right? Or yes. or uh, the the cost of a tank of gas. Yes, it's great that we're not paying $5 a dozen for eggs and that it doesn't cost $100 every time you fill up your tank. Is that because of Federal Reserve policy around interest rates? Or is that because we've had uh, our supply chain is is recovering post-COVID, right? So it, one of the things that's really challenging and for not just, not just casual observers, but anyone who's not a, an economist who specializes in understanding these phenomena is what are the markers where we would know if the Federal Reserve's approach is working or not? Is it, it's, it's not food prices actually, right? It's not the cost of gas. Is it rents? Maybe. Is it services where prices have not budged? Possibly, but services really reflect like a moment in time. Like I feel good about this. So I'm going to go have my nails done. Right. It's, it's so, so even I think one of the things that, that, that I took away from uh, the Federal Reserve Powell's testimony this week, but also the Federal Reserve's decision to not do another rate hike, but signaling that they are going to do two more this year is it is it not to give an answer that's unsatisfying, but it's hard to even know what is working exactly and what should be done. And so when you think about that piece in the context of, of the impact that this does have on financial institutions like banks, it, it becomes very hard to unwind. I don't have a good answer in short. (laughs) Yeah. The, the, the quote, the choice quote from Powell during this testimony that was reported by nearly every outlet was that inflation quote, has a long way to go to get it back down to its two, two, 2%, the Fed's 2% goal. Um, And so, you know, I I totally hear your point. Um, It is clear that it's going to be elevated and persistent. That's, that seems to be the consensus. Um, I just can't help think, Mike, maybe this, you know, one thing I think about a lot, as you know, because we've talked about this off the record, is just how pernicious it is that we live in a monetary system that we operate in a monetary system that essentially forces every single person to take risks with their money if they want to retain value you are forced to take risks with your money if you want to retain the value you go to work you earn $100 you put that $100 in a bank account it's an, it's a melting ice cube immediately and in order to retain the value, you have to beat the rate at which the ice cube is melting by, by risking losing it in some other way. And that, at its core, just seems really, really bad to me. And so that, that's, that's the sort of root problem here that I think about a lot whenever we talk about inflation. Um, and uh, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts, comments, otherwise we can go to look aheads. Just to say we've that's that's a dilemma that has, you know, plagued mankind since we decided to have to create a store of value, right? Um that we may have a a solution going forward, I suppose, in the digital age, but for for the moment, that has always been the problem, right? Even if you even if you decide to store it in gold and protect it with a moat and a sword, you still ran the risk of, you know, somebody finding a massive gold strike and and devaluing the 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 value of the store. 
So, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it sucks. It's also just kind of life, right? It's what you deal with when you're dealing with currency, at least as, as we've known it. Fiat currency. Yeah. Fiat currency that's not based on anything. But anyway, now that we're up to the speed on a few of the stories, uh, biggest stories this week, um, Lucy, what are you watching under the radar or wherever it appears on your radar? What do you got for us? So I was interested this week in the uh, release of test scores of 13-year-olds, of American 13-year-olds as part of the annual release of test results from the National Assessment of Educational uh, Progress, which is the gold standard of monitoring how kids are doing through standardized tests. And this year, the the scores of 13-year-olds has just declined in a way that's really striking. So 13-year-olds scored an average of 256 out of 500 in reading and 271 out of 500 in math. This is down from average scores of 260 in reading and 280 in math just three years ago. And even more worrisome, while achievement did dip across lots of demographics, it was in math especially that kids from black native american and low income students had much bigger drops in performance and it's easy to point to the pandemic could be the cause possibly but these scores were already declining before the pandemic started and these kids this year's class of 13 year olds are are kids who were between the ages of who were like 10 years old when the pandemic began and so those children ages 10 to 13, were in that block of kids where I think parents were thinking like, okay, these kids are, are pretty independent. They're independent learners. We don't need to be, I don't need to be sitting, holding their hand by the computer as they do Zoom. But but now we're seeing that this, this group has experienced a lot of learning loss apparently beyond just, and also perhaps for reasons that go beyond the, the pandemic. There were a couple of other things that were really striking about this. There was a student survey. And, and I should say that that these scores and I want to get this right. It's the it's the lowest score since in math performance. It's the lowest score for thirteen year olds since the year nineteen ninety, and in reading, it's the lowest score since two thousand four. One thing that was really interesting, and there's a great New York Times piece that sums all of this up, is that there was also a student survey given alongside this test. And I want to get this right: the percentage of thirteen year olds enrolled in algebra has declined to 24% from 34% in 2012. So big dive in the number of 13-year-olds taking algebra. In some districts and states, notably California, there has been a push to equalize math education by placing fewer eighth graders into advanced math. The percentage of 13-year-olds who reported, right, so if to get basically to create a more standardized curriculum, because kids are doing poorly in math, some districts have decided we just will hold everyone back and we'll just have fewer kids. Yeah. The percentage of 13-year-olds who reported reading for fun also declined. Last fall, 31% of 13-year-olds said, quote, they never or hardly ever read for fun compared to only 22% who said that in 2012. So not all of this can be attributed to the pandemic. I'm not an education expert. I don't know why this is happening. But we've talked a lot about in this episode, even about about China, about global competitiveness. And there is no question that we cannot be competitive if our our future, our our future voters, future Americans, if their if their scores are on 
this kind of trajectory. And so I'm really interested to see if this gets more pickup, to see what could be done about it. I'm sure it will become politicized, but but I'd, I'd love to keep learning more from a, a nonpartisan expert about why this is happening. Could it be screen time? I have no idea, but why this is happening and what can be done because it's going to become a really urgent, urgent crisis. This is such a good, this is such a good look ahead. We should, we should dig into this in detail. Um, I, I will, I will just flag, uh, that the reading thing, um, I, I think we may be able to explain this. The New York times did a really great, um, uh, expose about this recently about phonics and how essentially we have, we have devastated the literacy of a generation of kids because we abandoned phonics for, uh, uh, I can't remember how, what they called it, but basically a, a different sort of made up approach to helping teaching kids how to read that made, made people feel better. And in fact, it now the data is in and phonics is like absolutely the way to go. The science of, of reading is absolutely the way to go. And now we're reckoning with, um, this trend that really caught on. And so I wonder if that has a lot to do with the reading scores you're talking about. You're saying we should be hooked on phonics. <laughs> we should be hooked on phonics. <laughs> Anyone under, I don't know, any listeners under like 20 are going to be like, what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Mike, what'd you bring for us? Watching a couple stories. That, I mean, I, I watched with um, horrified fascination at the censure of Congressman Adam Schiff yesterday and the well of the House. Um, just kind of the further debasing of of the United States Congress and the many you know layers of politics there. Kevin McCarthy, who obviously uh, knows better, but continues to compromise himself. The anger and the rage of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boberts, who apparently had out, had it out on the floor of the House as well, uh, because they're 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 fighting over who got to you know file the articles of impeachment against Joe Biden in the middle of a censure debate, both of which are completely, it's just, it's, it's just like a bad, uh, it's just bad. Um, but you know, Schiff, Schiff, I think really uh, benefits from this. This is the irony of the whole thing is this is really going to skyrocket Schiff standing in the democratic primary in California. And I think it's just irony of ironies that Republicans trying to humiliate and debase the guy, um, are going to probably make him California's next United States Senator. So that story, uh, also this submarine story, I hate to say it, I'm watching the submarine story too, because we're just watching, so apparently the story just broke a couple seconds ago that they found a debris field uh, in, the, in the area, so it's not looking good. It looks like they probably have found um, the wreckage of this um, submersible that these uh, five fellas um, decided to jump into and go take a view of the Titanic. So. Uh, Unfortunately, um, probably not the wisest decision. Clearly not in, in hindsight, if the stories are true. Tragic, but yeah, there are a lot of warnings ahead of time. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we are going to talk about the political consequences of Hunter Biden taking a plea deal, where can everybody find you on the internet? If you want to be found on the internet, Lucy. I'm on Twitter still at Lucy M. Caldwell. I'm just not on Blue Sky, just still on Twitter. <laughs> Mike Mastodon, where find are you? me on Twitter. Still I, Twitter. I'm, I'm, I'm just going I, back to Twitter. 
I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not all those who wander are lost. Is that what they say? <laughs> uh, find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike and join us on Plus. Yeah, join us on Politicology Plus. I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslo. That's it. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.